to be a terrific show. Thank you very much, Don. Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to The Fire Show, a presentation which I hope will answer all your burning questions about combustion. And if you think that's bad, wait till I get into my stride. <laughs> now, I'm going to talk about things that burn. And in the next 45 minutes or so, I'm going to look at what happens when things burn, what kind of things burn. And also, because I'm actually not a scientist, I'm an engineer, I'm going to look at some of the things that we can do with fire and heat. Some of the ways that we can actually use the energy that is given off when something burns. But let's actually start right at the beginning of our little journey. <coughs> that sounds like a 20 a day habit. You're, that's one thing you shouldn't like, by the way, is tobacco. I've got a candle here little bit of candle stuck in this plank. Now, I wonder if anybody would like to tell me, if anybody thinks they know, what, is a can what candles are made of? Gosh, lots of hands going up. Uh, gentlemen, there on the back. Wax. Candles are made of candle wax, yes. Very good answer, perfectly true answer, but the next question then is, what's candle wax made of? Anybody like to hazard a guess at what candle wax is made of? Young lady at the front here? Beeswax. Not necessarily. You can make candles from beeswax. I'm glad you said beeswax, right, because the last time I did this show, I, I asked this same question, and somebody shouted out very confidently from the back of the audience that candles were made out of bees. <laughs> Um, presumably that's the bits of the bees that are left after they've mashed them up to make honey. <laughs> okay, any, what, what, what were you going to say about it? Goodness me, we've got a chemist in the audience, I'm shut up and go away now. Yes, it's paraffin wax and in fact paraffin, to, to cut this performance down to size, paraffin is made out of two kinds of chemical elements. It's made out of cut, it's made out of carbon atoms and it's made out of hydrogen atoms. Now, there are 92 different kinds of chemical elements, chemi different kinds of atoms that occur naturally here on the Earth. There are a few more kinds that you can make in a nuclear reactor, but we don't need to think, we don't need to worry about those. And those 92 different kinds of atoms can be thought of as being rather like 92 different kinds of Lego brick. You know how if you've got a box of Lego, you can make more or less anything that your imagination can allow you to think of. One day you can make a spaceship out of your Lego. The next day you can make a castle. The next day you can make a house or a train or whatever it is that your fancy takes. But when you change from your spaceship to your castle to your train, whilst you're breaking up the model and changing the model, you're not changing the bricks. It's the same set of bricks that you use to make each of those very different things. And this is exactly what happens with chemical elements. Paraffin is made of carbon and hydrogen, actually a molecule, the smallest lump you can possibly have of paraffin wax, if you keep chopping a candle up with as finer and finer and finer bits, eventually you'll get to a stage where if you cut something anymore, it stops being paraffin wax. That thing is called a molecule, and a molecule of paraffin wax has got, I'm going to get the numbers right, it's got 52 hydrogen atoms and 25 carbon atoms stuck together in a particular way. But we've got carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms and oxygen atoms and phosphorus and all sorts of other atoms in our bodies, but we don't have any paraffin wax inside us because although we've got carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms stuck together in all sorts of ways, we haven't got them stuck together in that particular way that makes paraffin wax. But anyway, what you're looking at in this candle then is a big collection of these molecules, these, and there are billions and billions and billions of them. 
in there. There are certainly more paraffin wax molecules in that candle than there are people living on the earth and there's about 7,000 million, 7 billion of us. Anyway, there's a lot, an awful lot of paraffin wax molecules, an awful lot of carbon atoms, hydrogen atoms in there. And when we set fire to those, when we light the candle, what we're actually doing is like taking our Lego model and smashing it up and actually going to the shops and buying some new bricks and mixing those new bricks in with the bricks we had before to make new models. And we're taking these big molecules, which are made out of carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms, fitted together in this particular way, and we're turning them, we're breaking them up, and we're sticking the bricks back together to make lots and lots more little molecules. And what we're actually making are molecules of a gas called carbon dioxide, and we're making something else. And my first experiment is going to be to try and find out exactly what's going on in that candle flame. Now, you might think that trying to find out what's happening on the scale of atoms is extremely difficult. But actually, all you need, in this case, is a glass jar. Actually, I also need somebody from the audience to help me. Somebody who uh, looks trustworthy, because I need a witness. Now then, who has an honest-looking face? That's extremely difficult to know. But this young man here looks like he might be honest. Are you his mum? No. Is he an honest young man? So if I ask... And if I, what's your name? Alexander. Alexander, if I ask you a question, can we rely on you to give an honest and truthful answer? Yeah. OK, so let's put that to the test. Alexander. Are you a girl? No. Does everybody agree that Alexander tells the truth? No. Yes. Okay, Alexander, would you like to come up to the front, please? Now, what we're going to do is if you come round to this side with me. Here I've got a glass, a, a fairly clean glass jar. So the first thing is, Alexander, have a look at that. Would you agree that that's pretty clean? And um, could you put your hand in, please, and feel the inside of the jar? Is the jar dry or wet? Wet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, actually, it isn't. Well, and, oh, never mind. Can't try. <laughs> You were supposed to eat, well, let, let's see if, we, let tell you what, let's see what happens to the inside of the jar. I said I wanted a truthful witness, I didn't want, didn't say I wanted a painfully honest one. <laughs> but Alexander, what I want you to do is to watch what happens to this jar, when I, the inside of this jar, when I stick it over the candle. We'd expect that the candle will go out, and indeed I hope it will, but let's see what happens to the inside of the jar. Now, I hope you can see that the inside of the jar is beginning to steam up a bit. Yeah. You'd agree that it is beginning to steam up? Yeah. There is something collecting on the inside surface of that glass jar. It's getting steamier, isn't it? And it's definitely, you would agree with me that it's definitely it's definitely something cloudy in there so when the candle's gone out we will have a feel inside the jar and see there we go so if you would now like to put your hand back inside the jar and it's it's definitely it should be damper yeah yeah it's, he's learning <laughs> well what Alexander has helped me to demonstrate is that what we've collected... Oh, by the way, uh, we've collected some water on the inside of the glass jar. Now, Alexander, can we have a big round of applause for Alexander's honesty? If you'd like to go and sit back down, thank you very much. Yes, we've collected water on the inside of... Now, I'm going to, make, going to dry this really well. <laughs> 
So I'm doing it again in a couple of hours, and I think we might bake that in an oven. <laughs> anyway, we accumulated some water. So, what is water made of? Think about atoms and molecules. What's water made of? Again at the back. Hydrogen and oxygen, quite right. We have two chemists in the audience. I'm definitely going home. Right, we've got hydrogen atoms from the candle. Remember, that's made of hydrogen atoms and carbon atoms. The oxygen that makes up the water, the water being, remember, H2O, two hydrogen atoms stuck to one oxygen atom. The oxygen has come from the air inside the jar. So, clearly... As the candle burns, some, the hydrogen atoms, are joining up with oxygen atoms and they're making water. So what happens to the carbon atoms? Well, I'm going to try and catch some carbon atoms with my spoon. By the way, in the news at the moment, you might hear a lot of people talking about carbon capture and storage in connection, this is a bit for the grown-ups, in connection with efforts to deal with global warming. Well, this is a very simple example of carbon capture and storage. And it works like this. What you do is you take a spoon, it's a nice shiny spoon, so if you can stand to do so, have a good look in there. You might even see your own reflection. There you go. Do you see it's a nice shiny spoon? Yep. Um, you know, that's brave of you to look in there and see your reflection. Yeah. So anyway, what we do is we take our nice shiny spoon and we dang and we put it over the candle flame. And in the course of collecting of doing that, what happens is that the spoon goes black. You can now see, I hope, that you can no longer see your face in the spoon. <laughs> it's quite safe to look at it now. You cannot see your reflection. Now, that is a film of soot. And soot, ladies and gentlemen, is made of carbon atoms. It's basically a big collection of carbon atoms. So I have captured some carbon, and if I put this back in the box without cleaning it, I have stored that carbon. So, all we require to cure global warming is 150 billion of these which we can collect the carbon from, and then we just wipe the carbon off and bury it back in the ground. <laughs> I shall be offering shares in a company floated to promote this scheme, it's a sh if anybody wishes to invest. Anyway, there we have basics of what happens when something burns. We've got the carbon atoms being freed from the candle wax. Now, we captured some of those as naked carbon atoms on our spoon. In fact, a lot of the, those carbon atoms ultimately join up with oxygen atoms to make carbon dioxide gas. Now, the reason that the candle flame burns brightly, gives us light, is because that process is not actually 100% complete. There are carbon atoms, soot particles, getting heated up so much that they glow, and it's the glowing of those carbon atoms, those, those soot particles, that makes the candle give off light. It's not actually directly the flame that gives us the light, it's the energy from the heat energy which is released when we take these complicated molecules and make them into simpler molecules and mix them with oxygen, that gives us the, that heats up those carbon particles, and that's what gives off the light. Now, I'll try and show you that with a gas torch. This burns a mixture of butane and propane. Like paraffin wax, butane and propane are both made out of a mixture of carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms, so they will both burn to the same substances. Like the candle, this, gives, this flame burns to carbon dioxide and water vapour. The difference is that I can vary the amount of oxygen that's getting into this flame. At the moment, you can hardly see it because it's getting 
so much oxygen that every carbon atom is being turned into carbon dioxide. If I cut the oxygen supply, we get soot given off, and that soot makes the flame light up. Enough oxygen, the flame burns almost invisible, cut the oxygen supply, and we get soot. So, what we have here is a process of chemical reaction. Taking one chemical substance, reacting it, causing the atoms of that chemical substance to split out of the molecules of that substance and to, and to grab atoms of something else to make new substances. But the atoms themselves are not being changed. So the carbon atoms that came off that candle are now in the atmosphere as carbon atoms. Some of those we will breathe in. And by the end of the day, some of those carbon atoms that started off this morning in that candle may well have been incorporated into your blood or your bones or something, particularly if you're one of the people who's growing. But everybody here is constantly passing atoms <coughs> through their bodies. Now, we know that paraffin wax burns. We know that gas burns. We also know... Does anybody recognise this stuff? Any of the kids recognise this stuff? I hope the grown-ups know what it is. What is it? It's not soot. It's coal. Fossilised wood. Basically, solid carbon. That burns. And gas burns, we've said, and petrol and all those things. What about metal? Can we burn metal? Right. Here goes. Quick vote. Who thinks that we cannot, that you can't burn metals? Hands up. Okay. Who thinks that you can burn metals? That's really quite impressive. You haven't seen this show before, have you? And who isn't sure? Who's the scientist who's not sure? That's right. Now, I've got some metal here. But it doesn't look like, like we'd expect a metal to look. It's not a solid, silvery substance. This little pot contains very finely powdered aluminium. An aluminium powder like this is used by the police and forensic scientists to find fingerprints because it sticks very, very well to the tiny traces of grease that you always leave behind whenever your fingers touch a surface. The other thing about this stuff is that it's actually something of a fire hazard. And I'm going to try and prove that to you by setting fire to some. So what we're going to do is we're going to have a, get, get a gas torch going and we're going to blow some aluminium powder into the flame. And we're going to do that with this turkey baster. So, now the people in the front row want to not look at what I'm doing. Because you're going to, this, if this works, we're going to get quite a bright, I hope we're going to get quite a bright light. So, in fact, can we have the lights off? Thank you. So, here we go. Three, two, one. Now, you missed it. Oh dear, that means we'll have to, do you know, do it again, do you know, I actually, I have to pay people sometimes to do that. <laughs> but anyway, here we go. Now, where is, I think it was a little girl who missed it, wasn't it? Well, could I ask you to watch very carefully this time? <laughs> because otherwise we'll, we'll never get any further than this. Are you ready? Are you watching very, very hard? You want to be watching here? 
And are you all ready? Let's have another go. Three, two, one. Yeah, but you saw it last time. Okay, can we have the lights up again, please? Now... Aluminium burns to give a solid smoke, which is what you can see floating up by those lights. Um, it reacts with oxygen, it makes aluminium oxide, and aluminium oxide doesn't actually melt until it reaches a temperature of over 3000 Celsius, and that's considerably hotter than the flame that the aluminium produces, so you get solid smoke. Something else that burns, and really burns rather well, is a substance that you are probably all very familiar with. Can anybody tell me what the content, what this is? Speak up! Custard powder. Custard powder. Now, who here likes custard? Not me. Okay. If you like custard, and most people do, so if you don't like custard, I'm sorry, you're just odd. <laughs> if you like custard, did you know that if you've got a pot of this, you're actually harbouring a dangerous explosive? You are. So what I'm going to do is to demonstrate why custard powder is a controlled substance under the Terrorism Act 2000. So what you do is you take some of this stuff and you put it in a little pot like that. Now I've put about a teaspoon of custard powder in there and what I'm going to do is to blow that custard powder into a gas flame which is burning over the top and what's gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to see just what happens. I better put that out of the way because we don't want the whole lot to go up. Now, when working with explosives, it's a good idea to stand some distance away from them. Could we have the lights out again, Dom? The other thing is that... I don't know if you want anybody watch Blitz Street. A series of programmes on Channel 4 with Tony Robinson about the bombing of Britain during the Second World War. One of the things they did was, apart from the fact that everybody went about two kilometres away from the explosion, now we're only having a little explosion, so we don't need to do that, is they always, before they let off one of these big bangs, they have a countdown. So what I need from the audience now is a countdown from... But it would be nice if we all counted down at the same time. And when we get to zero, I will see if I can make this custard powder explode. So, are we ready? Five, four, three, two, one, zero. <laughs> so, now, shall we do that again? Yay! Incidentally, I've noticed something strange about this that quite often for some reason when the custard when custard powder explodes people seem to cheer i've no idea why but that's a little bit of a bit a little bit of psychology for you so again five so can we have the lights back dom now Okay, custard powder exploding is fun. It is actually, on a larger scale, dangerous because at one stage, birds had a custard powder factory in the middle of Liverpool. It's not there anymore. And the reason for that is that they had a... If you get a big cloud of custard powder and a spark on a nice dry day, you get bits of custard powder factory flying all over Liverpool. 
This happened several years ago, and the people of Liverpool basically said to Birds, look, we love your custard, but we'd love it even more if you went and made it somewhere, preferably a long way away from where people live. But the really important thing about this is that custard powder burns. Custard powder is a food. In fact, every single food that we can eat will burn. Okay, if you try it with something like a cucumber, <laughs> you're on a hiding to nothing unless you dry the cucumber out thoroughly first. And then it goes horrible. But that residue of dry cucumber will catch fire. The important thing about this is that you've got the same atoms, the carbon atoms and hydrogen atoms, in custard powder in all the foods we can eat. All these things burn, and that's important because what it tells us is that what's happening inside our bodies to that food that gives us the energy to keep living is exactly the same as what happens in a candle flame. The carbon atoms and the hydrogen atoms that come into the cells of our body that ultimately come from the food we've eaten join up with oxygen atoms to produce carbon dioxide and water vapour. The carbon dioxide we breathe out, something else happens to the spare water that we produce. I leave that to your imaginations. But we get energy. We tap into that energy that is available from reacting hydrogen and carbon with oxygen and that ultimately is what's keeping us all alive now. So our basic process of staying alive is essentially the same as the process of candle burning, even though, of course, we don't have a little flame burning in our tummies. So there are some things that burn. Let's think now a little bit about some different ways of setting things on fire. Now, I probably shouldn't be telling you any of this, but you all look like sensible people. Do you all look like sensible people? Yes. So you know not to try these things for yourselves. Now, the easiest way... I'll start again, because I was going in the wrong direction there. The thing you need to set something on fire is you need to get it hot. One of the easiest ways of getting something hot is by, by friction, by rubbing one thing against another. And just to show you that, just, just to remind you of that, get your hands, rub them together. Now, if anybody sees smoke, stop. Okay. Now, if you try rubbing your hands together, Legend has it you can make fire by rubbing two sticks together. Well, you can, but it's extremely hard work. In a match, we use that basic idea and we give it a big helping hand because we use some chemicals. There are chemicals that are put in the striker on the side of the box and in the head of the match. If you put those two chemicals together and give them a little bit of heat, they catch fire. The heat comes from striking the match on the side of the box. So that's one way of making fire, just by getting some heat from friction. If we're going to have the lights out again, please, Dom. We can get, if we can get something that'll make sparks, they're hot, they'll cause it, they'll start a fire. The next thing I'm going to show you is a thing called a flint and steel. And that is something that's been used for hundreds of years to light fires. In the olden days, a flint was literally a piece of flint stone, which will be familiar, I'm sure, to anybody who's got a garden in this part of the world. The steel was a piece of steel metal, a knife blade, something like that, that you could strike on the edge of the flint. And if you strike the steel on the flint, you get sparks. Now, I'm using an artificial flint, and the reason I'm doing that is simply that it makes it much easier to see the sparks. Didn't, didn't, didn't get you with one, did I? 
Would you like me to get you with one? <laughs> okay. So, if you take something which catches fire very easily, something which is dry, which is soft, which has a lot of, which is very fine fibres, so it's in contact with a lot of air, and you strike your flint over the top of it, you should be able to set it on fire. I've got some cotton wool in this dish, so let's see if I can get that to light. So we can actually set our cotton wool on fire just with the heat from one or two sparks. Now, can we have the lights up again, Dom? Another way of getting something hot is to pass electricity through it, if it conducts electricity, that is. I've got some very fine steel wire here. It's about the thickness of your hair, for those of you fortunate enough still to possess some. It's very, very fine steel wires, all mashed up in a sort of muddle. It's like hair that hasn't been combed for a year. It's actually used as a bit like sandpaper for smoothing paint and smoothing wood and things. And of course, being made out of steel metal, which is a conductor of electricity, if I feed some electricity into it, it'll get hot. And in fact, because the wires are very, very fine, they're going to get really, really hot with only a little bit of electricity going through them. Electricity supplied from this battery. Can we have the lights again? So, if I take the battery and I apply it to my steel wool, with a bit of luck, it'll catch fire. And there we have, that's burning at a temperature of, I should think, <coughs> six or seven hundred degrees Celsius. And again, if we then had that burning, we could use that to light something else and we could create a fire in that way. Now, I said that steel wool is used as a, a, like sandpaper, so it's used in some factories. And there have been a number of unfortunate incidents where somebody in such a factory has, for some reason, had a battery like this in their pocket. They've gone to the stores to get a handful of steel wool, and they've then put them in the same pocket. Shortly afterwards, their trousers were seen to be on fire, which is very much funnier if it isn't your trousers that are doing the burning. So this is a very sensitive, very, e very easy way of creating a fire. Now, who here owns a bicycle? And who here, hands down, who here pumps up the tyres on their bicycle themselves? Yes, I did notice that there are an awful lot of bicycles in Oxford that haven't had their tyres pumped up since they were made. But you'll notice if you pump up the tyres on your bicycle, and for those of you that don't pump the tyres on your bicycle regularly, I recommend this experiment to you. Go home and try it, and you'll also find that your bike goes a lot easier too with the tyres pumped up. If you take your bicycle pump and you pump up the tyres, you'll notice that as you squash up the air to force it into the tyre, you also make the bicycle pump get hot. Part of the effort that you put into squashing up the air makes the pump get hot, and there's nothing you can do about it. That effort is always taken up in... Some of that effort is always taken up in heating the air up. And in fact, if we can heat the air up, if we can squash the air up hard enough, we can actually use that heat that we generate to set fire to something. Now, I've got a thing here that's a bit like a bicycle pump. It's got a slider, a piston, that slides in a cylinder, this tube, and it's a really good fit. And it's a, I can show you it's a good fit, because if I pull this out, it stretches the air out in the tube, and you get a nice big pop as the air, as the piston comes out and more air rushes into the, to fill up the vacuum that you've created in the tube. So we're not going to use this to make a vacuum, we're going to use it to heat up some air by squashing it up. 
And on this stand here, I have put a tiny, 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 tiny little bit of cotton wool, about as much as the fluff that accumulates in your tummy button overnight. Really tiny little bit. And what I'm going to do then is I'm going to trap this in my tube. And then I'm going to force my plunger down very hard and see if we can get that hot enough so the cotton wool will light. Now, this is going to produce a brief flash, if it works, because I'm afraid this is not 100% reliable. Dom, if you can do the lights, I want everybody to look at the bottom of the tube here, where I'm pointing, and concentrate on that. And then I'm going to try and force the plunger down and see if I can make the cotton wool flash into fire. Is everybody watching? Everybody concentrating? Yeah. Yes. Okay, let's try it. One, two... No. Try putting some fresh air in. It's... I think I've got too much stuff in there. It's almost the case that if you can see how much cotton wool you've put in there, you put too much in. Let's get some more air in. Right, let's try again. One, two, three. Yes. Right, that's, I'm not doing that one again. Thank you. But that is actually hugely important because what you've just seen is how a diesel engine works. Now, in a diesel engine, you have pistons that slide up and down inside cylinders, round plugs that fit very tightly but run smoothly in their cylinders. The cylinders are closed at the top. When the piston goes up, it, press, it compresses air and heats it up to a temperature of about seven or 800 degrees centigrade. When the air is really compressed, a little valve opens and that sprays a very fine mist, like hairspray mist of diesel fuel into that hot compressed air. The diesel fuel explodes, liberating energy which is used to push the piston down. That turns a crankshaft that not only pushes the other pistons up and compresses the air, but there's enough energy left over that that, that energy can be taken out and used to do something useful, like make, the, like make the wheels on the bus go round and round. That is basically how a diesel engine works and that actually is one of the most important things that I've shown you today. And that brings us on to the idea that we can make use of the energy that we get from fire to do all sorts of useful things. And I'll just show, finish off by showing you a few of these, starting with one that isn't really useful but is quite fun. We naturally make fire, we can actually use fire to make things obviously get hot and when I heat this tube up there's a piece of wire gauze like a net made out of metal about there in the tube. When I heat that up with a bit of luck it'll sing to us. it sings to us. Now, one of the things that, another thing we can actually do with heat, with fire, is to boil water. And we can actually use that boiling water to do some quite surprising things. So, for my next trick, I'm going to take this can and I'm going to inject about two teaspoons full of water into it. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to get this bowl of water here. Put that so... I'm going to now boil the water in this can. This will take a little time. Because even a small amount of water needs a lot of energy to get it boiling. 
when this is good and hot, I'm going to plunge this can suddenly into the cold water and I want you to see what happens. I think that might be going. So, my can collapsed. Why? Okay. When we heated the water, we boiled it. The boiling water drove all the air out of the can, so when I plunged the can into the boiling, into the cold water, the can was not full of air anymore, as it had been before, but it was full of steam. When you take steam and you get it cold, it condenses, it turns back into water vapour, turns back into liquid water. And when it does that, its volume shrinks by nearly 2,000 times. So basically, if you take a half a teaspoon of water, that makes enough steam to fill a two-litre can. The can then found that there was nothing inside it except for a tiny drop of water, and the air was pressing in on it all around from the outside, and the air presses in really with quite a lot of force. You can see the sort of... you can get an idea that there is a force from the pressure of the air with this old trick. If you take a piece of card, put it over the top of that, turn it upside down with a bit of luck, the card... That, and that's, that's because the air pressure pushing up on that is much greater than the weight of the water pushing down. Now, that force, which amounts to about 10 tonnes per square metre, was pressing in on that can and the can is only made of thin metal, so it got out of the way. And that, it turns out, is something that we can make use of to make an engine. And over here, I've got a working model of the world's first heat engine, the world's first engine to use energy from burning fuel to make power. This was built almost exactly 300 years ago by a man called Thomas Newcomen. And this engine, his engine got its steam from a great big copper kettle boiling under the cylinder here. He didn't have a wallpaper stripper under his workbench like I've got. But in this cylinder here, which is rather like the working part of a um, bicycle pump, we've got a plunger that slides up and down. That's connected to this beam which rocks and then on this side we've got, well, in his engine that was a pump that went down a coal mine to suck the water out of it. So first thing we do is we fill the cylinder up with nice hot steam from our boiler. We turn that off and then squirt cold water into the cylinder. And when that happens, the steam condenses and because there's then nothing in there but a tiny drop of water, atmospheric pressure pushes the piston down. It's doing to that piston exactly what it did to that can. If we let more steam in, we can break the vacuum, we can let the piston come back up, the pump goes back down at the other end, more water cools the steam down and we get power. Now, Newcomen's first engine, which was built in 1712, wasn't very powerful. By the way, it was enormous. It was taller than this building. It produced about 10 horsepower and it produced about... and for each unit of energy that the engine put into pumping the water, you had to fuel 200 units of energy into the boiler. It was almost the opposite of efficient, but it worked. And that engine was the ancestor of every steam engine, every motor car engine, every jet engine that we now rely on for so much of our everyday lives. But that's not the only way we can get power from heat. As well as condensing the steam, we can actually make a jet of steam and now, what's the big... You, you're 
presumably all fairly local, aren't you? So what's the biggest building in Didcot? The power station. What goes on in that power station? I'm, I'm, I'm going to show you here what basically goes on in the power station. What they do is they burn coal. I've got some gas because coal is messy. That coal is burnt to produce heat, which is used to boil water and make steam. I've got a boiler here. I've just put, you've just seen me put a little bit of water into it. There's a bit more, bit of water in there already. So what I'm going to do now, this is, by the way, not what they do at Didcot exactly, but the principle's the same. I'm going to light my gas torches. And... Let that heat up the water and the water will turn into steam. Now, the two pipes that stick out of the sides of my boiler have actually got little holes in them. There's one pointing towards me and there's one pointing towards you. Now, when I did this earlier, I got quite a lot of black yucky water out of it, which is why I've got tie-dye t-shirt on. So, you might want to take cover in a minute. Okay. When the steam, when the water turns into steam, we should get a jet coming out of each end of that pipe. Those jets face in opposite directions. Come on. Don't be shy. And the energy that's gone into the water to make it into steam is now being used to push, to make those jets push that boiler around. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the principle behind the machines they have, the steam turbines that they have at Didcot Power Station, which are probably keeping the lights on in this room right now. If you're going to do it on the scale they do it at Didcot, it gets a little bit more complicated than this. Um, and again, you're talking about machines that are bigger than this room. But the idea is that is basically what I have shown you, that they take heat, energy, to make, they boil water to make steam, they use jets of steam to make the machine revolve, and that produces the, that produces the mechanical energy which is taken and used to turn the generators that keep the lights on. We've almost, you'll be pleased to hear, come to the end of my little story about heat and fire. And I've really only got one more thing that I want to show you. And as far as I know, this thing is of no practical use. Thank you, Dom. This is of no practical use whatsoever, but it reminds us that fire can be both beautiful and is potentially very dangerous. So, what I would say to you, please do not try. For the children in the audience, the people who are still young enough to have fun, I would say don't try any of these things at home. To the grown-ups, that's the people who've forgotten how to have fun, yes, try them at home, but please do a full risk assessment first. So my final demonstration is just to show you the beauty and power of a fire tornado. In this room, I am going to create, ladies and gentlemen, a small and hopefully controllable fire tornado. Now, madam, there's really no need to, gr to grab your... You might want to see it as well. Yeah, there's really no need to grab your bags and make ready for the exits. I've done this in venues all over the country, and so far, 
my insurers have not had to pay for a single new hall, much to the annoyance of some of the schools I have visited. <coughs> Let us proceed. What we do is we take, start off with this turntable. And in the middle of this turntable, there is a cup, and into this cup I am going to put a small quantity, I think it was the galloping gourmet who used to refer to a slurp, it's about half a slurp of lighter fluid, and I'm going to light that. Now, if I just spin this round as is, nothing much happens. We have the lights, but if I put this cage on, this paint cage has holes in it, which grab hold of the air and make the air spin as the cage spins, something rather magical happens. Oh. And yeah, it's not actually getting hot enough to set fire to the ceiling. There we have a fire tornado, and like a real tornado, it's caused by two motions of the air. You've got rising air from the, the heat of the flame, spinning air from the cage, making the air inside it spin. Those come together and they make a corkscrew effect that pulls the flame up. Would you like me to relight my fire twice? Excellent! It's... I've got to be a little bit careful that I d I've got to make sure I've got enough lighter fluid for it so I can treat, treat everybody else to this as well. But, here we go. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that this is the end. When my fire tornado burns out, I'm afraid my show will have come to an end. You've been a super audience. I don't know if you've enjoyed me. I've enjoyed meeting you. So, that, ladies and gentlemen, was the fire show. Thank you for your attention. <laughs>